Hi, I'm Michael Whistler, and I think science fiction is essential for humanity's survival. Welcome to this episode of Exploring Tomorrow. On this episode, I want to talk about one of my favorite movies and books and talk about why it continues to be incredibly relevant, even though it was written by a scientist during the Cold War. I'm talking about Contact by Carl Sagan. You know, some stories you just kind of come across uh, casually, almost by happenstance. Contact was kind of like that for me. I'd never heard of the book as a teenager. And uh, then the movie came out in the 90s. It stars Jodie Foster. It's directed by Robert Zemeckis, who you may know from Forrest Gump, uh, or making the weird animated Christmas movie, you know, uh, The Polar Express, with its uh, animation that's deep in the uncanny valley. That's a whole conversation for a different thing. Uh, I'm not a fan. Anyway, contact. <laughs> stay on topic, Michael. Stay on topic. I came across the movie actually on VHS. Uh, rented it at my local video store one weekend. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, alien contact, space movie. Let's check it out. Seems, seems like it might be cool. Popped it in, watched through this movie. It completely sucked me in. It was a life-altering event. Honestly, it really was a life-altering event. I remember sitting through the film as a young evangelical Christian, uh, as I was raised uh, that way, and really connecting with the dialogue in the film around faith and science. And are these things at odds? Where do they have crossover? How can they relate to each other? How can they connect, even have intimacy, as it were, with each other? I only knew of Carl Sagan because of my evangelical creationist uh, sort of background as this dangerous atheist that had influenced the world to be more godless. And to reach the end of that film and see that it's dedicated to Carl Sagan. And I was like, wait, what? And then to realize it was based on a book by Carl Sagan just made me further go, what in the world? But the most significant thing was that watching that film for the first time in my life gave me a real sense of the scale of the universe. And I remember as a teenage boy going back to my room where I could be alone and then just laying down on my face and weeping just with awe for probably a good half hour because it was the first time that I truly began to appreciate how vast our universe really is and how tiny each one of us is. 
Contact instantly became one of my favorite films, and I would revisit it and rewatch it and share it with people and, and discuss it and talk about those aspects of that conversation of faith and science. Because even as I grew up uh, as an evangelical Christian in that world, I had a deep affinity for science and I had a real, I placed a high value on questioning on skepticism, on wanting to verify things and not just take the established norm or customs or tradition, uh, take those things as, uh, well, for lack of a better term, gospel, but to rather put things to the test and really explore them and think through, is this logical? Does this make sense? Does this actually coincide with experienced reality? And so as I continued on my own journey, I continued to engage with this story because of that. It wasn't until years later that I finally decided, you know, I need, I need to read the book. What's wrong with me? Like, I love reading sci-fi. This is one of my favorite stories on the screen. I should go to the source. I should go back and look at the novel. It's a, it, it is kind of a hefty novel. And, um, you know, and it, there was a little trepidation there because I'm like, well, you know, Carl Sagan was well known for being a, a good scientist, a, a good educator of science. But was he actually a storyteller? Was he a novelist? I thought I'd give it a try. I had a friend in high school who had read the book and she said it was really cool. And I was like, okay, all right. So finally, as a grown adult, I decided let's dive into this book. Very true to the story that we see in the movie, Sagan does unpack this very nuanced, very complex relationship between religion and science. Uh, which I find fascinating. It continues to be really fascinating for me because, yeah, I grew up uh, as a as an evangelical Christian. I've stepped out of that world now. Uh, don't really feel that that's where my ideology, uh, my view of life uh, really rests. But all things spiritual and theological continue to be of utter fascination and interest uh, to me, because again, I love exploring life. I like making sense of life. So of course those things are interesting and valuable and meaningful to me. So let's dive into a little bit talking about why the book has become one of my favorite books and one that I revisit and go back to and why I think it's really relevant today as well as the movie. But there's some key differences between the movie and the book. And I think on this topic of the, of the dialogue between faith and science, uh, a particularly notable and important distinction between the book and the movie uh, that is really worth unpacking is that in the movie, we get Matthew McConaughey playing this former Jesuit priest who falls in love with Jodie Foster's character, uh, Ellie Arroway, who is the, the main character, the scientist who makes this pivotal discovery of an alien signal being transmitted to Earth. And it's just indisputable evidence of intelligent life that originates outside of our solar system. And 
the book, it's a little different. Um, Matthew McConaughey's character, uh, Palmer Joss, uh, is the name of the character. Palmer Joss is not a Jesuit priest or former Jesuit priest, a man of the cloth without the cloth, as, as the character describes himself in the movie. Instead, the Palmer Joss of the book is actually a current uh, evangelical Christian uh, leader. So he's Protestant, not Catholic, and, and he's very much within the purview of the evangelical subculture. Although he is maybe a little different than some of his counterparts. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Sagan's writing in the book, is that he brought in actually multiple characters within that world to be able to contrast and give a little more nuance and not paint a one-sided, uh, single-note, two-dimensional picture of the religious world. But instead, or even of evangelicals for that matter, he ins instead he actually seems to go out of his way to offer as three-dimensional and as human and as empathetic even of a picture of these evangelical religious leaders and cultural influencers of his time. And with that, is able to distinguish a little bit between maybe the more thoughtful and uh, more logically engaged and more open to dialogue folks like he paints Palmer Joss in the book and others who are not quite that way, who are a little more dogmatic and a little more set in their ways and a little more threatened by the notion of this alien signal and this evidence that suddenly rocks the foundation of the specialness of human beings, which I think is one of the core aspects, especially of Christian faith, that there is a, a level of specialness to us human beings being created in the image of God and so forth. And so suddenly to be encountering these intelligent beings uh, that are definitely not human and, and we don't really know what their theology is and we don't know how they relate to God, if at all. It can be scary, it can be threatening to our sense of specialness as religious people. Uh, and so I, I really connected with that struggle and that journey. What's also of particular distinction in the book versus the movie is, and you know, I don't think this is to spoil anything for you, there is no romantic relationship uh, that really develops between Ellie and Palmer Joss. Uh, instead, it's a, a much more nuanced friendship uh, with a lot more respect and I think just mutual intellectual admiration. Though admittedly, Ellie doesn't start there. She doesn't start admiring Palmer Joss. She thinks she's just another one of these, you know, happy-go-lucky religious folks that loves the limelight, loves being on TV, loves being an influencer, uh, you know, loves the fact that he has the president's ear, basks in that and uses that to his advantage. And then as she gets to know him, she en ends up discovering that actually is a much more complex, thoughtful, and open person here. And likewise, Joss 
Palmer Joss is challenged by Ellie, both in the book and the movie, by, to, to really think about what does it mean to live in this universe and be a person of faith and be encountered with evidence that really maybe challenges some of our notions and perspectives uh, and maybe preconceived ideas of who God is or might be, uh, of who we are and what our place is in this universe as we discover that we're not alone and that our uh, planet uh, is not the single exception to the rule, as it were. So why does this dialogue between faith and science continue to be important today? Why is it worth re-watching this movie? Why is it worth picking up this book and rereading it, or maybe reading it for the first time if you've never read it before? You know, it's interesting, as I pointed out earlier, that Carl Sagan was writing this book uh, really during the height of the Cold War, after decades, really, of dealing with the Cold War. And so he's writing this in the 80s, and and in the book it's set in the in his future um, the end of the 20th century in 1999 going into 2000 and so there's a lot of references around that uh, but it's very clear that that world that the characters are inhabiting is still one in which the USSR uh, has not fallen um, and there is still this cold war going on there's still a lot of political tension that revolves around the powers of you know the political powers of the world the united states the ussr uh there's a lot of arguments uh between you know communism and democracy and uh, what are those roles how do we um, ensure the safety of people? What, what is the best system of government? All of those things are, are, are trickled in throughout there and are nuanced aspects of the story. Because in the book in particular, it's not just Ellie that ends up getting sent to uh, go through the machine and make contact with these alien beings that have sent the signal and these instructions for how to build this amazing machine that apparently seems to open a wormhole that allows you to travel uh, very quickly to other parts of our universe. In this process of selecting who's going to go, because Ellie's not the only one, there's a lot of political maneuvering and posturing, and, and, and Carl gets to comment a lot on how we see ourselves as a species and how are we going to portray ourselves to another species? How are we going to present ourselves? Uh, do we send a bunch of white men? Uh, do we send a bunch of white American men? Uh, do we send Christians, right? This is a big concern and there's all this debate back and forth. Like we've got to, we can't, we can't just send atheists. You know, there's, I, I, I really relate to that aspect of the story and, and, um, the the dialogue and the political pushback and and the posturing around it and that we got to make sure that we put some people on these on this crew that are just good god-fearing americans um and, and so there's a lot of pushback on an atheist like um ellie arroway the main character of the story uh because 
you know, she, she's not willing to openly uh, call herself a, a person of faith. Um, and uh, she's not really going to uh, into this with any sort of sense of like, I'm going to represent uh, some sort of religious worldview to these aliens. She's just, uh, she's a scientist. She's going to gather data. She wants to learn, you know, and, and I related to that a lot, even when I watched the movie and I thought, yeah, you know, in that position, even though at the time I was so, uh, you know, bought into my evangelical worldview, uh, I remember thinking, but yeah, you know, your first duty in that position is to go in with an open mind and go learn regardless of what it ultimately means to your own preconceived notions and your own worldview that you've held dear uh, up to this point. Uh, because even as a, as a scientist, Ellie Arroway is being confronted <laughs> with uh, some earth shattering uh, realities here that some, some information that ultimately confirms what she'd always hoped for, but also, uh, changes forever how she sees, uh, her place in the universe and, uh, really the role of humanity in the universe. Now, why does this story continue to be relevant? This cold war, as it were, story of religion and faith and dialogue. Well, for one thing, we're living through an incredibly polarized time as a country. And with that in mind, it's worth, I think, looking at stories that foster healthy dialogue and empathy and complex dialogue uh, and nuanced uh, conversations between characters who, who have very different worldviews. I, again, I don't think it's any, any spoiler here to, to point out that Joss and Ellie don't really ever land on the same page. Ellie does not get down on her knees and say the sinner's prayer or something and become a born again Christian. Um, the way maybe even Joss would like her to. Um, at the same time, Joss doesn't abandon his view of a caring and loving God who is, uh, uniquely invested in human beings. And yet they continue to be really profound, connected friends who continue to relate and, and, and struggle and wrestle with and explore these deep and, and seemingly unanswerable questions. So there's a real sense in which I feel like I come back to this story, and especially in a time like this, and I think of how am I encouraging that kind of loving empathetic, open, vulnerable dialogue between myself and people who see the world fundamentally differently than I do. And especially as somebody who has navigated the world of evangelical Christianity and has exited uh, in any formal sense that world, how do I still navigate those conversations, that reality, uh, respectfully, lovingly, and with openness to say, I might be wrong. I 
know what I have experienced and I can't change what I've experienced. Um, and I can't for a moment begin to think that I can speak for other people, but can I listen in humility and speak in love? Now that's tough. You know, and I'll admit, I have failed at it miserably uh, many times. Uh, it's in fact, it's one, it's one reason why, especially in the current climate, I have had to step back and say, I have got to take a break from Facebook. Not because I am sick and tired of seeing what people are posting, more because I am sick and tired of being like, of seeing what it does to me, of how I respond in that particular forum and how I don't, I don't embody, uh, I haven't embodied too often the mentality and, and the give and take and vulnerability and openness, uh, that, uh, I would like to in light of being profoundly affected, uh, by stories like contact. I don't think I've modeled or embodied the kind of dialogue that we see between Ellie and Joss in contact. And as such, I, I, I chose to take a break, take a break for now and just kind of step back. So I'm on Facebook very little these days um, because I just kind of, I need to recalibrate. And, and also the, the realization of like, it's maybe not my job to run around and try to like, you know, change other people's minds uh, or somehow you know, have, have this kind of intense, vulnerable dialogue with an entire community of people. <laughs> um, you know, cause I think one of the things that's beautiful about contact is that it is a singular, you know, relationship. It is, it is two people relating to each other. Now there's beauty and simplicity to that, to, you know, when you're, you're trying to write a story, it makes sense like, oh yeah, you know, maybe go the route of just having these two people have this dialogue. But I think there's something to be said about this, the, the reality and the necessity of that, um, that it is face to face, that it is, uh, one-on-one -on -one, and that it is in relationally driven. Um, you know, like I said, in the, in the book, uh, Palmer Joss and Ellie Airway, uh, don't fall in love, uh, in the movie they do. Um, and it's, it, but you know, even there it's like they, I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe they don't, you could make the argument, I think in the, in the movie that maybe they don't really fall in love. They certainly are attracted to each other and pretty quickly get into bed with each other. And, but then there's this continued connection between them, but it's not always quite so romantic, but there seems to be, um, deep caring, uh, and, uh, respect for each other. I think it is interesting that in the movie they chose to do that. It feels like a very Hollywood thing to do. Like, oh, you know, yeah, they jumped into bed uh, pretty early on. And I remember reacting to that, you know, as, as a young uh, evangelical that was part of the purity culture move and all that. I remember, you know, being like, ugh, oh man, you know, like that's, that's maybe the less ideal aspect of the story. Uh, in the years since then, I've come to appreciate and understand that from a visual storytelling perspective, there is a level of uh, sex functioning as a 
uh, shortcut or um, shorthand for intimacy. Now, any sex therapist will point out that intimacy and sex are not the same thing. Uh, they often go hand in hand, and really they should go hand in hand, ideally speaking, uh, but they are not ultimately the same thing. But I get it. In a storytelling context, it's easier to say, oh, let's show that these characters very quickly um, become vulnerable and intimate emotionally with each other uh, by being able to suggest that they have had sex. The movie's not graphic or anything like that. It doesn't have this like long drawn out sex scene. You really just get the, oh, you know, looks like they might get together. And then sure enough, next morning they're in bed together. So it's not showing you anything, but it gives you a clear understanding of what has happened, uh, which again, I think supports that idea of it displaying more importantly, this notion of there's a connection um, there's some real intimacy going on here with these characters. And because of that, uh, they're not going to easily walk away from each other, even though they do see the world and life and our roles in it and God and all of those things very differently uh, from each other. In the book, you've got room to explore all of that and slowly uh, bring that sort of emotional intimacy together. And so they didn't need the shorthand of sex to make that a part of the story. You have a lot longer time span uh, to really spend with these characters and to see their relationship evolve. Uh, so I think it works really well. All that to say, all these years later, um, as a guy who's worked both in filmmaking and as a novel writer, I actually don't fault the the writers uh, or Robert Zemeckis or anyone else involved with the movie for making that choice. Uh, actually, I get it. You made a shorthand, quick choice to be able to show the evolution of intimacy in these characters very rapidly. So I guess I've abandoned maybe that <laughs> um, more judgmental side of me that I had at that time uh, when I first saw the movie. I also think that this uh, book, it continues to be really relevant because we are, in a sense, stepping into, we have really stepped into a politically tumultuous time globally. Uh, and as we stare down some very real problems, uh, we're dealing with a pandemic um, that is really shining a light on, on a lot of uh, where our biases and preconceived notions ultimately break down and, and stop working and uh, present us with new challenges. Uh, we're also dealing with a political climate globally. We're also dealing with a political climate globally that feels kind of familiar for those of us who are alive for uh, any decent portion of the Cold War. Uh, and I was born in 81, so I, you know, I came in at the very tail end of all this. But I, I grew up remembering clearly the tensions between USSR and the West. Uh, you know, I remember when the Berlin Wall fell and, and, and the, you know, these things were part of my awareness, even as a child. Looking at that or, or seeing events like Tiananmen Square uh, and then thinking about the kinds of issues and political realities that we're navigating today, 
I think it continues to shine a light on the continued need we have as a species to develop and evolve, to work together, to find our common ground, uh, and to navigate some of these tough, difficult uh, conversations. So even though the book can feel a little bit dated in the, as you pick it up and it has these Cold War references uh, and it's dealing with a very different past now for us than what we experienced in uh, 1999 and the year 2000 and so forth. Uh, it still feels true, I think, is, is the reality. It's, it feels true to the essential nature of human relationships, politics, and those questions we have around where are we going as a species? What is our purpose? What is our significance in the cosmos? Are we just here to kind of bitch and moan and, and fight amongst ourselves? Or are we here for a grander purpose? And what is that grander purpose? Can we connect? Is there anyone else out there? listening to us, whether you're asking that from the religious perspective of someone like Palmer Joss, or if you're asking it from the perspective of someone like Ellie Arroway, who's saying literally, is there a, a physical intelligent being out there somewhere that, that we can come in contact with? I think those things make it truly transcendent as as a story and why it continues to be an absolute favorite story of mine and why i want to come back to it time and again and, and why i recommend more and more people check it out so if you've never seen the movie please please go check it out there's so much to the story uh so much to be experienced firsthand um that is beautiful and worthwhile and uh is really an experience that that I hope more people have and enjoy. If you haven't watched the movie in a long time, please revisit it. It's really worthwhile. And and if you've never read the book, I highly recommend grabbing it. Uh, grab the audiobook. There is an unabridged version of the audiobook. Uh, you can certainly check that out uh, or just take the time to read through it. I've done it both ways. I've done it reading through it and, and the audiobook, and both, both ways are really worthwhile experiences. And I love that these characters are all really fleshed out, especially in the book, presented as three-dimensional characters who are navigating some very tough, some very difficult things. Um, and, and are still pushing that boundary of exploring, of exploration, of wanting to know more, uh, of not being satisfied with the simple answers or with um, dogma even. I love that in the book, Ellie regularly comes back to this idea of would we even be relevant as, as a species, would we even be relevant to an alien species out there that maybe is so advanced and so beyond us that to them we are like mere ants and we, we have the mere intelligence of the ants, you know, like, yeah, so ants really work well together. They have a whole colony and it, and they can be incredibly organized and all that kind of stuff. And that's all great. And yet how many of us you know, care at all if we step on an ant or just even spray down a whole uh, ant colony because we don't want them coming into our house. 
it's of no consequence to us. We don't look at them and say, these are sentient beings uh, that have inherent value and worth, uh, or even souls and spirits that, you know, we, we should be concerned with. No, it's, a, it's of no consequence to us. We give it no thought. And it's one of the questions she has throughout the book, which is, so if we encounter these incredibly intelligent beings that are so far more advanced than us, then do they even like give us a second thought? Do they even care we exist? And to a great degree, I think that's Ellie's question of God as well. So if there is this God that exists and has created the universe and has all this amazing infinite power and is timeless and uh, yeah like why us and do we even matter to that god and i think it's really fascinating worthwhile conversation and you know joss like i said joss and ellie land in different places uh, in that conversation, but this is exactly the kind of meaningful conversation that science fiction has on this grand scale that is so beautiful and so worthwhile. And what I ultimately respect about what Carl Sagan did with uh, the book and that was and what was done even in translating it into the movie is that, uh, Carl doesn't ultimately land on any sort of easy answer and actually kind of shows his cards as being a much more thoughtful and nuanced spiritual person um, of actually not really being uh, an atheist, but uh, maybe more along the lines of an agnostic, uh, but who's who was open and questioning and exploring and thoughtful about all of that, uh, rather than claiming a, any sort of dogma uh, one way or the other, uh, claiming some sort of certainty that he didn't have. But he opened it up into this dialogue of what experiences these characters had had. And in the process, I think he paints a very um, relatable and respectable picture of both sides, which is really admirable. I think is really uh, lacking in a lot of what uh, I see today. You know, I, as just an aside, I remember reading Ready Player One early on in the book. There's this whole section where the, the character goes off on this rant about God and and basically like just lays out like his view of the world and why he's an atheist. And I was like, okay, interesting. You make some, some really valid points, actually, some, some points I'm kind of on board with. But mostly I was just like, where's this going? You know, <laughs> where, where is this going to go? And the further I got into the book, the more I was like, okay, so when, when are we like is something happening? Cause usually, you know, you set something like that up early on in a story, there's some sort of, you know, reversal or some sort of thing some way in which it comes back and it didn't, nothing was ever done with it. It was really kind of just a moment. I think of Ernest Klein getting on a soapbox and saying, rah, I'm an atheist. And it actually, he never, he never did anything with it in the book. And it was really disappointing. 
not because I wanted the character to like, oh, again, like, oh, he goes through the spiritual experience and then he like, you know, whatever. Or not because I wanted it to be like, and see, this is exactly why it becomes a didactic presentation of uh, atheism, a defense of atheism. If you're going to put that in, then do something with it and don't make it just a didactic, uh, one-sided rant and then abandon it. Offer up some sort of dialogue and some sort of exploration and then allow room for the audience to ponder it themselves. That was one of the things that I was so conscious of in my first novel, where there is actually a very clear, uh, very X-Files-like dialogue about uh, faith and science. And, and you have characters landing on different sides of, of that coin, right? And, and I wanted to write it with genuine deep respect because I really do have genuine deep respect for both views and, and appreciation for that and allow simply audience uh, members, well, uh, audience members, I wanted to make a movie of it at one point, but, but uh, I wanted to allow the readers to be able to make up their own mind. What do they think? How do you interpret this? Because I think that is the best kind of storytelling. And especially when you get to dive into science fiction scenarios that offer up this very big scale and these very deep philosophical questions, it's important to allow room now then for the viewer or reader to step away and say, okay, what do I think of that? And I think Carl Sagan did that with Contact, which is why it's, it remains utterly influential to me uh, as just a real model of how to do this and do it on a beautiful scale. And finally, it's just a beautiful book. That whole question, it was, well, what's this scientist guy on uh, this educator? Uh, yeah, he could host a cool TV show and stuff, but was he a novelist? I'm, I'm sure he got plenty, plenty of help, but hey, guess what? All of us novelists get plenty of help. If we're smart, like none of us are born amazing, <laughs> we get lots of feedback and we revise like crazy. I'm sure he did that. At the same time, I'm blown away by the craft uh, of the work and the beauty of the writing. And uh, is it the most like flowery, beautiful? No, no, no. It's not, it, it, it's, it's not going to win sort of those literary awards. And, and, and frankly, a lot of that is, is sort of literary masturbation as far as I'm concerned anyway. Because I come from the perspective that is it serving the story? What, you know, is it, is it getting us into the story or not? And sometimes, you know, uh, super flowery, beautiful writing can be a bit like amazing visual effects uh, in movies where it's like, wow, that's really cool, but I don't care. You know, it's like that, that 20 minute scene or whatever in, in Peter Jackson's King Kong. That was just like, oh my gosh, we get it. You can make some really cool bugs and dinosaurs and uh, God, can we just get back to the story now? Like seriously, I, that was some of the most boring 20 minutes of cinema I've ever seen. Uh, and that's saying something. <laughs> well, that's an aside. But, you know, so, sure. You know, Carl Sagan's novel is not necessarily the most 
flowery uh, language like that. But it's certainly not Dan Brown either, which is just a stunted ugliness, uh, but gets you to just keep turning the page. So it's somewhere in between there. But I still think the beauty lies really in the character development, the pacing of the story, and the amount of detail and thought uh, that went in to making it feel real and plausible. Uh, and yet not feel like now we're going to have, you know, a 30 page uh, didactic discussion of all these minutia and detail, blah, blah, blah. You know, he embodied the, the political tensions in characters and their dialogue. He embodied uh, the, the spiritual tension and, and dialogue and, and, and the technical and the technological and even, you know, the, uh, the academic, he does, I think one of the things that's often just kind of, um, not talked about because there's so much other really good stuff to talk about in contact, but it's a great presentation of the shittiness of academics within contact and the whole hierarchy and the and the male dominated aspects of it and the fact that uh, Sagan chose specifically to have his character uh, his main character be a female in this male dominated world especially I think again he's writing this in the 80s uh, and especially thinking of it in that context and the fact that he has the main character a female navigating the hierarchy of academics who has kind of a jerk uh, um, boss <laughs> you know, and has to deal with navigating all of those realities um, and doing it in a way that feels authentic, that feels real, that feels um, not overly simplified. I think that's one of the things that's fascinating to me that has aged well about the book. Um, you know, some other, other science fiction doesn't always age well. I was just having a conversation with a friend actually last night, but one of my favorite, uh, science fiction books, uh, stranger in a strange land, right? Great book from, from its day and age by Robert Heinlein. And, uh, I was pointing out that, yeah, but it doesn't age well in some respects. There's a certain level of just the way. Heinlein presents the relationship between men and women in uh, that book uh, and in other Heinlein books, frankly, um, that, you know, maybe a bit misogynistic. Um, it's a product of its day to a degree. You can uh, probably say that. Um, and so it doesn't age particularly well. It wasn't very forward thinking in that capacity. But I will say that the way Carl Sagan presents uh, Dr. Ellie Airway in contact has aged well uh, from my perspective. Uh, and continu she continues to be this very relatable, real, three-dimensional character uh, that's navigating these very real tough problems uh, and rising to an amazing challenge and able to do some amazing things while navigating a very white male dominated world, right? You know, that's why I want my, uh, my daughter to grow up to be, uh, an Ellie Arroway, uh, uh, in her own right. Um, and I continue to come back to the story and think, yeah, this is, this is worthwhile. You know, there's so much more that we can talk about in the specifics of the story, uh, especially when you get into 
trying to unpack what did or did not happen. Uh, what did Ellie experience? Uh, or, or in the book, what did she and her cohorts, her team of people that uh, went with her, what did they all experience uh, when they went through the machine? And how are we to interpret that experience? And I think what, you know, it's really cool about that. And I, and I think it's really unique uh, perspective that uh, Carl Sagan presents within the book is that there's this aspect of incredible subjectivity that is, has to be embraced, right? We have to take their word for what happened, or in the movie, you just have to take Ellie Arroway's word for what happened uh, on the other side, because no one else got to go with, and none of the technology that... Uh, they relied on for recording the event actually worked. And as such, uh, bringing back evidence is pretty challenging. And the idea of how do we trust and, and believe and place our faith in people when we feel that we don't have you know, we can't fall back on uh, scientific evidence and verifiable, repeatable uh, results and data. I think it was really fascinating that Sagan brought that in and and had that aspect of the of conversation within the story. It raises some interesting questions about the limitations of science and what science is inherently good at and maybe the areas where science just by its nature can't quite isn't quite equipped to handle you know some people would say then that's where we paint this nice little box and we say yeah this this is this is science over here and then that stuff over there that's religion because and and then never the two should meet right uh because there's no crossover and yet some fundamental questions about who we are and what we're doing here <laughs> uh, come into play no matter what uh, throughout that. So I think that's one of the awesome things that, that, that Sagan does with a book. And again, why I come back to it and revisit it and just ponder it. It's kind of a, a, a exercise of meditation, uh, really. And I think maybe that's just because they're, they're questions that are important to me. And maybe I'm just still... Uh, you know, that uh, sort of lapsed Christian who finds uh, these things utterly interesting and, and uh, I'm still curious and exploring these things myself. But I think it's worthwhile for more people. I think there's real value in taking the time to ask those questions. And it's the type of question, this whole idea of are we alone, it's the type of question that only gets asked whether you're going to church or you're watching a science fiction movie or reading a science fiction book, right? Uh, so it's interesting to me that those kinds of things tend to be the kinds of questions that somehow fall into this territory of either spiritual exploration, spirituality, uh, or science fiction or speculative fiction, right? Uh, and I think there's really great importance in that. And it's one of the reasons why I continue to think that science fiction as a genre uh, is 
of great importance and great value uh, to us as a society, as individuals, and why it's worth uh, more of us spending some time exploring this. And I, and I will say this, if you are not the type of science fiction fan who, or even the type of person who really generally dives into science fiction uh, a lot, this is not Star Wars, this is not Star Trek, this isn't uh, Doctor Who, this isn't, you know, maybe uh, the, the type of uh, science fiction that you're uh, used to encountering. This is incredibly plausible, thoughtful, uh, and ultimately character-driven science fiction. And as such, I think it's the kind of science fiction that non-science fiction uh, fans can uh, get into and dip their, it's a good place to dip your toes into the water and get a feel for what the genre has to offer. And it continues to be an absolute favorite for me, utterly influential to the kinds of things I write. And, uh, and, and the, you know, I continue to pursue that experience of awe. Um, that was a profoundly shaping moment for me as a teenager, and it really influenced uh, really even where I am today uh, in terms of faith and all of those things because of wanting to better wrap my head around a universe that is so vast and so complex and so seemingly empty. It's, it's an interesting question that I continue to come back to. And that whole idea of, is there, is there a life out there? Is there anyone out there? Well, it does, uh, as Ellie says in the movie, it does seem like that would be an awful waste of space. All right, everyone, that's what I have for this time around. Thank you for coming along uh, for this journey and listening to me ramble on for quite a while uh, about one of my absolute favorite science fiction uh, novels and movies, and uh, unpacking a little bit at least about why I think it's so significant and valuable. I really encourage you to go either grab the movie or the book or do both, and really take some time to explore for yourself uh, the, the types of questions that I've been bringing up in this episode. And to think through how you relate to these characters and where do you see yourself in their conversation uh, and, and to just experience a beautiful story that is asking some, I think, really important big questions and continues to be fascinating and relevant politically, uh, given the world that we are currently living in. And I'm also hugely appreciative if you would like to subscribe. That way you can stay up to date on latest episodes. And please do check out my website, michaelwhistler.com. That's M-I-K-E-L-W-I-S-L-E-R.com. And you can see blog posts there where I explore more of these things around meaningful science fiction. And uh, you can see some of the stuff that I've been writing, like short stories and books and whatnot. Even see some of my old uh, short films that I made. So some fun ones in there, and there's some pretty laughable ones too. Thank you again for listening. Uh, I hope you're well. Stay safe. Be well. Be creative. Ask big questions. We'll see you later.